I am your host, Alec Crawford, and this is Stay Sustainable, a podcast about sustainability, technology, artificial intelligence, and how they impact you. I am discussing these issues with high-profile guests to give you important information that goes deeper than other sources. Will AI save the planet but kill all humans? Is ESG investing about to rebound? How can you use AI at your organization to win? I'd also like to give a shout out to our podcast producer and audio engineering team at Troutman Street Audio. You can check them out on LinkedIn. Welcome everyone to the Stay Sustainable podcast. And our very special guest today is Doug Parker, founder and CEO of Ecolumix. So welcome, Doug. Alex, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Anyway, I, I love... Uh, talking about people's careers and where they started. So tell us a little bit about what you studied as an undergraduate. Well, uh, for someone who spent his career in a science agency and then founded a data science company, I ran away from math and science and I was a history major uh, in college at Colby College uh, up in Waterville, Maine, um, and took a fair bit of government as well. Um, but I was in that uh, history government uh, track. Awesome. Well, now, since you live uh, near D.C., that's probably a little bit helpful occasionally, I would imagine. Absolutely. And what was your first job when you, uh, when you graduated from Colby? So when I got out of Colby, uh, I was hired as a history teacher and a soccer and lacrosse coach. Uh, I played lacrosse up at uh, Little Colby College, and um, I did that for three years at a school, a uh, private school in Andover, Massachusetts called the Pike school. Uh, and it was a, a great experience. And I thought I would stay in the education field. But uh, lo and behold, I pivoted after about three years. Cool. And, and what lessons did you take away from being a lacrosse coach for business? There's a lot to be said for teamwork. And there's a whole lot to be said for practice and picking yourself up uh, after you've been knocked down, I would say. Yeah, that's a good lesson for startups, for sure. And uh yeah. And who was your, your best boss and, and why? You know, I've got to move, move forward. I've had the good fortune to have some really terrific, terrific bosses. Uh, but the one that, that stood out was a guy named Mike Martin. Um, and this was fast forward when I was a special agent in EPA's criminal investigation division. He was my boss uh, out in uh, the Midwest. And uh, I just learned so much from him. He was a true... A, leader. I learned about engaging in difficult situations, learning to be good at my craft as an investigator. So um, I've got to uh, thank Mike Martin for a whole lot of lessons that he taught me along the way. That's awesome. And, and, and speaking of that, like, what was it like being stationed in Detroit in the early 2000s? So just tell us a little bit about your job and what you were doing, like what was day to day and then what was interesting about it? Yeah, so I uh, I moved from the the teaching and, and lacrosse coaching world eventually into law enforcement, but particularly environmental law enforcement. And so I was a special agent with EPA for uh, twenty almost twenty five years. And after nine years in Baltimore, where I was what you'd call a street agent, conducting investigations, doing traditional investigative work, surveillance, interviews, search warrants, etc. Um, we got transferred out to. Detroit, where I took a promotion, um, and this was literally right after 9-11. So um, I had, uh, uh, right after 9-11 hit, I, along with thousands of others, was tasked to uh, um, respond to the Pentagon, and I did some brief work there, and then it was straight out to Detroit. So 
my time in Detroit was colored by a lot of homeland security uh, activity in addition to traditional environmental crimes. Um, and so if you're an investigator in environmental crimes, Detroit is a phenomenal place to work. Uh, it is what you would call a target rich environment. Uh, it's got the busiest border in the country. So there's a lot of issues with material moving back and forth and some that shouldn't move back and forth. Um, but it was, I was incredibly busy, worked with great agents and prosecutors across many different organizations, state police. And then uh, there was the ever present uh, support to the FBI and others and Homeland Security matters, which were kind of top of mind at that point in our, in our history. Wow. Super interesting. And uh, earlier you mentioned a book, Ghost Wars by Steve Call. Tell us about that. What's that book about? Yeah, I think it's just a great, uh, it's a great history lesson. I'm a, as I said, I'm an old history major and I, I really enjoy both history and national security and the intelligence world. And uh, I tend to be a bit of a, a student of that and tiptoed around that area just a little bit in my career. And it really lays out the trajectory of uh, Afghanistan um, uh, just past the 9-11 attacks and, you know, the, the challenges of engaging even as a superpower in that area, trying to um, work against your adversaries, then preventing bad things from happening. And it's just brilliant writing and, and reporting. It's almost as though he's been in the room. So if that, you know, that 15-ish years just past 9-11 and starting in the late 80s is of interest, I, I can't recommend it enough. Sounds super cool. And uh, moving on, you became head of enforcement for the EPA. That sounds amazing. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I, um, I, my career took me from Detroit uh, back to Washington, D.C. in 2006, which is sort of you know, the, the mothership of uh, government agencies. And I took a position first as the assistant director for investigation. So I oversaw the criminal investigative portfolio. I had colleagues across the uh, building and aisle who ran civil enforcement, but I oversaw the criminal investigations. Uh, and then I went from there to deputy director, and then I served as the director uh, for the last three and a half years of my tenure. So um, during that time as deputy and, and then uh, director, I oversaw the Deepwater Horizons investigation. Uh, and then just before I left, I oversaw the BW emissions cheating investigation. But in between, there are a whole lot of other cases, a whole lot of engagement with uh, DOJ and Capitol Hill and occasionally the media and occasionally internal issues. So it was, uh, it was a great run. Um, it, there was certainly a lot less casework uh, and a lot more management work. But uh, it was a tremendously fulfilling career, and I was really grateful to have that role and try and have an impact on the program uh, for particularly that last three and a half years. Well, you must have some great stories from your career, but uh, I'm, I'm sure some of them you have to change the name to protect the guilty. But uh, is there a, a good story you can share with us? Yeah, I mean, I, we'd always said the, you know, the best cases have the best stories because ultimately we had a set of facts to prove um, and you had to convince first prosecutors and then a jury and ultimately, you know, uh, judges on appeal of the, the validity of your case. But I think I really enjoyed the ones where you felt, um, as I used to tell my team, that you could bring, you know, justice on behalf of those with a small voice or no voice at all. And 
And one quick one that sticks out is uh, a um, case in Baltimore where I was uh, the investigator with some Department of Defense colleagues where the um, former USS Coral Sea uh, was being dismantled and any old warship is going to be essentially a toxic stew of environmental issues, asbestos, PCBs, et cetera. And this ship uh, was being dismantled uh, improperly in violation of all kinds of laws and posing real hazards to the individuals who were doing the work, who were often undocumented immigrants, um, who after you know, ripping out asbestos with their bare hands and being exposed to other hazards, were then threatened with deportation uh, and not paid by the owner. Uh, but ultimately, we, um, we were able to build an effective case. We convicted him um, and felt like we got a good measure of, of justice for some folks who'd really been put in harm's way. Wow, that must feel great. And, and, and speaking, of, speaking of that, uh, you're the, the founder and CEO of Ecolumics, an ESG data analytics provider Full disclosure, I'm an investor and on the advisory board of the company for our audience, but why don't you tell the audience a little bit about the, the mission of the company to start? Yeah, so I would say that there, it is a, a mission-driven enterprise first, um, in that you know during my time at EPA, we more and more began to focus on using analysis and data to identify misconduct. And along the way, I realized the power of environmental data. Um, and this is data that companies are required to submit to the government. It may be that they have a, um, a permit to discharge or they need to report emissions data. And as I looked around and I got out of, left my government career, I really looked around and thought, this is incredibly powerful data. How can it be put to use? In this case, you know, not to, you know, identify misconduct, but to help companies and those who analyze them identify risk. So we came in kind of next to the ESG data craze. And I would say next to it because most of the data tools out there involve voluntary reporting surveys. Um, and I really came from the don't trust verify world of data. And so uh, my co-founder, uh, Paul Stay, who is a data scientist, um, we looked around and said, let's harvest this data and really build meaningful report cards for companies so they can assess their own performance, see where they are against peers, and help those, whether you're an asset manager or a consultant or an outsider, really understand how companies are doing in a credible way. That's awesome. And what was the aha moment you decided to start the company? Yeah, I, I looked around as I began to dig into uh, some of these other data providers, I just kind of shook my head, quite honestly. And I saw things that didn't make sense. And in one case, a uh, very large, very successful data provider rated uh, an asset management company, a company that if you think about their environmental impact has people, computers, and buildings, and some, maybe some external emissions, um, they rated them as a higher environmental risk than a company that was the top 10 CO2 emitter in the country. And to me, it just kind of crystallized that, that there's a better way to do this. And if people have better information and better insights, they can make better decisions. And that's really the, the mission-driven part of it as well. That's awesome. And, and who is your ideal customer? You know, 
our customers, they're, they're really twofold. One, our companies themselves, think large corporate EHS, ESG, sustainability programs, who want to understand how they're doing and how their competitors are doing in a very, as I said, credible way. So that's kind of audience number one. The second is the folks who want to look at those and analyze those companies. If you're an asset manager, a consultant, a banker, you want real granular information about how this company is doing, not just this company, but these specific facilities within a company, then we can, we can help with that. And ultimately for both audiences, both corporate and the, those who are on the outside, we're a, we're a risk mitigation and risk management tool. Cool. And, and tell us about the kind of analyses customers are asking for. What's a good example? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, everyone wants to know how everyone else is doing in their peer group. So I would say benchmarking is really, you know, the, the area that's gotten the most interest uh, from us. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, or one of the reasons for that is, you know, frankly, governments, uh, NGOs are looking at the lowest performers uh, within sectors. And that's where they're focusing either their enforcement resources or in many ways, their attention. Companies really want to know how they're doing. And so that it's often we'll get a request to look, how do we stack up compared to um, X number of our, our peers? And then we can drill down in a very granular way, how they're doing in climate, how they're doing in the emissions, how they're doing in compliance. And then it allows them to um, either pat themselves on the back if they're doing wonderfully, or more often than not, you know, identify areas where they can improve, may need to move audit resources, so they are um, uh, not at the bottom of the pack and they're moving towards the top. Yes, this is obviously not just at the company level, but also at the facil- facility level. And what, what types of, uh, of data are you absorbing and then collecting and connecting back with the parent company? So um, I asked for confirmation a few months ago from my colleague, Paul. I said, is it billions of data points? So start with the fact that we're collecting, we've collected billions of data points, but they really fall into, you know, six primary buckets. Um, what goes out into the water, uh, what's generated and managed for hazardous waste, uh, toxic emissions, climate impact, worker safety, and overall compliance. So if you want to look at a company and you might have 200, you might have 700 facilities, and you want to isolate what your locations are that have the most significant risks and may need the most attention in each of those categories, we can do that. We can trend it over time. And as I said, in benchmarking, we can compare you to how your peers are doing as well. Awesome. So well beyond uh, greenhouse gas in terms of ESG. And uh, any plans to use AI in the future? Everybody's talking about it. So yeah. So um, AI is the thing, as you know, in, in this, a lot of this conversation. Um, it, and the, the short answer is yes, but it depends. Um, AI is terrific if you have a big enough data set. Um, but within what we do um, currently, there's, there's still some limitations in the data, even with that many data points. So it's coming, and I think where you'll see it and where we'll apply it is really in predictive risk. Um, We're moving to identify, build models using AI, machine learning, um, where we can identify um, which facilities are going to have the most significant risk for things as as terrible as a worker fatality, uh, a 
catastrophic injury or a catastrophic release. So I think, look, uh, in the next couple of months, we'll have more to say on that. Um, but there's tremendous promise, but it's not a substitute. It's not a magic bullet uh, in the risk world, in the environmental risk world, at least. Yeah, it's not going to replace people, but it will certainly help people. And, and speaking of catastrophic releases, what is the EPA focused on for the next few years in terms of enforcement priorities? Yeah, so the, the nice thing about the EPA, if you're being regulated by them, and some people think that's an oxymoron, uh, if you're being regulated by them, is that they tell you what's important to them. Um, and they come out every three years with new priorities, national enforcement and compliance initiatives. And the two new ones that were added this year, which are not terribly surprising, are climate uh, and PFAS, uh, the perfluorinated substances, which are persistent in, in the environment. And so I think what you're gonna see, we've seen the Biden administration talk about a whole of government approach to climate. And EPA is front and center in that. And they'll look not just at um, methane emissions from landfills and uh, other areas that are articulated, but if you are not squared away on your greenhouse gas reporting data, um, you're making statements about your climate resiliency on government documents that somehow can be reviewed, um, those will be under scrutiny. So you really need to uh, measure twice, cut once in terms of your submissions of data to the government, and you really need to have you know, an external set of eyes on those. I think you'll see a there already is a tremendous focus um, on climate. And then the other thing I would say is the government reacts to catastrophic incidents. We saw it with Deepwater Horizon that led to a great deal of uh, new regulation and focus. We uh, also saw it during the Flint water crisis as well. So there will be some reactive areas if something goes bad, but um, look for climate and PFAS as real areas of focus. And uh, beyond the AI things we talked about earlier, what are your plans for Ecolumix in 2024? Yeah, I think we'll see, um, as, I, as I alluded to, more predictive risk uh, modeling uh, in terms of catastrophic incident. But I think the bread and butter will be benchmarking and compliance risk and really rolling that out in a way so that companies can truly understand their risk and their performance. And I think the, one of the reasons that's important is I, I've often talked about sort of three mega trends um, in, in the environmental space. One being innovation, which hopefully will save us from a lot of bad things. Um, uh, but the other two are public sentiment and transparency. What used to stay behind the fence line no longer does. So companies need to understand that. And in terms of public sentiment, generally, generationally, um, uh, this country uh, and Western Europe and others are reacting with their wallets. They're paying, you know, they're, they're opening their wallets to companies that they believe are good stewards of the environment and they're closing them to those that they don't believe are good stewards. So increasingly understanding how you perform, um, you know, through tools like ours and others and knowing that it's increasingly going to become apparent to the public, I think is really going to be significant. And I'm optimistic and pretty confident that we'll see a lot of, uh, interest in what we're doing as a result of that. Yeah, good point. And, you know, turning to the advice section, you know, what do you wish you knew before you started your company? You know, I think I probably made a common mistake, which is you fall in love with your product before um, fully vetting the pain points and needs of your 
future customer. Um, and I, so my point of advice is gain as much early discovery from your customer base as you can. People are really, you know, generally nice about giving you their time and their insights. Um, and so I would hardly recommend everyone who is taking on whatever venture they are to really focus on customer discovery um, as, as kind of item number one when they start a new venture. Yeah, that's a great idea. You know, engage with customers early and find people who want to work with you and move fast and talk to you. That's great advice. Uh, if someone wants to work for the EPA and they're in college now, what should they be studying in school? Um, good question. I think, you know, this is sounds uh, a little inconsistent with my background, um, but beyond the kind of critical thinking piece, you know, which hopefully I brought to my, uh, my work, I'm a huge fan of data analytics, and GIS, really understanding data. I mean, foundationally, if you want to work at the EPA, it is a science-based um, agency. So environmental engineers, um, environmental studies, bio majors, et cetera, there's always going to be a place for those folks with hard science. But I would really encourage people um, to uh, be able to have some uh, geographic information you know, tools and data tools to really round out their, um, their experience. And you still need to write in this world. So once you get in the door, um, you're still going to need to be able to, you know, put your keys on a keyboard, if not a pen on a piece of paper. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, chat GPT can't do everything, right? <laughs> exactly. And what advice do you have for CEOs who are mandatory reporters to the EPA? Yeah, I, it goes back to my, you know, measure twice, cut once. It's really measure three, four times, cut once. You really need to have um, confidence in your people, but you need to bring in some external folks to, to validate your data as well. Um, you do not simply, you know, honestly want to solely rely on your own own team. It's, it's not dissimilar from bringing in uh, a large, you know, accounting firm to uh, you know, analyze your books every year, which is required. It's really important to get good third-party advice, and it's not just—it doesn't just identify issues or problems or perhaps validate good work already. Um, it brings a level of confidence um, to the regulators who are reviewing your data. Um, enduring an investigation um, by a company, um, criminal or civil, but especially criminal is a very difficult exercise and it lasts not months, but years. And so it is worth the investment in third party assurance, um, high quality uh, and, and a high quality team. And then the last thing I, was, I would say is don't starve your EHS team of resources. Um, they used to be viewed as a quote unquote cost center, um, com you know, poor compliance uh, and lack of investment there is a much bigger risk than, you know, incremental increases in your EHS and compliance team. Absolutely. And this is even outside of environmental, you know, Amazon got fined almost a billion dollars for, you know, private, you know, privacy disclosures uh, yeah. a couple of years ago in Europe. So absolutely. And how about boards? I mean, it sounds to me like, like corporate boards should be more involved here. I absolutely think they should be, you know, you, you, the sort of the, the, the thought of sort of the rubber stamp board or not having expertise on there 
is increasingly problematic for companies. I think it's really important for boards to bring in, you know, unique skill sets onto their team. Some people may have a, uh, you know, insurance, a finance background, but bring on those folks as well who can, you know, even if they don't have direct experience in the environmental space, have experience leading uh, a team in the environment. Um, and, you know, boards need to, to look at the tools they have to provide, you know, external feedback and external diligence on their program. Um, boards rarely have an idea of the performance of the, the true environmental performance of their company unless something goes really badly. And increasingly, I think being able to unlock that intelligence at the board level is going to be, you know, much more critical uh, as they figure out how to manage risk in an increasingly challenging environment, no pun intended. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and talk a little bit about, you know, what kind of culture is is required to be able to to do that at a, at a company? Yeah, I think, you know, you really need a relief valve is what I would call it. You need, you need exit ramps where people um, can, you know, speak and, and disagree without fear of retribution. Um, and I think, honestly, in, in some of the, you know, most significant criminal investigations at the corporate level, what we saw is there were often good people um, who were siloed, who for fear of retribution or not being listened to, um, didn't feel like they had an outlet and bad things festered and got worse. And, um, and so I really think you need um, to build in, and it can be as basic as a hotline. Uh, it can be as basic as three, 360 feedback within certain organizations. But you really need those those feedback loops and to ensure that there's no fear of any retribution. Yeah, that's that's great advice. Like I've always said, you know, I'm going to speak truth to power. Right. But that's not everybody um, is able to do that or, or in a position able to do yeah. that. So the last exactly. five minutes is a lightning round where I mention different things and ask if you think they are underrated or overrated and why. So first, kicking it off with living near Washington, D.C., underrated or overrated? Underrated. You know, I was a New England boy. Never thought I would, you know, last down here. Um, but there is in, there's a lot of chatter about D.C., of course, but it's a beautiful city. Um, it's manageable in size and there's great nature right around, right in and outside of the city, which I think is one of the hidden bonuses that people don't realize. So put me on the, as a fan of DC and on the underrated category. Chick-fil-A, underrated or overrated? I mean, how can you underrate Chick-fil-A? It, it is absolutely not overrated, but it's almost, uh, it's, it's, it, it's to me, it's the gold standard in, in quick service food. I won't even call it fast food. Paying the players in college sports, underrated or overrated? You know, I would say it's overrated. Um, if, if I'm, you know, I, I think that uh, the, the, sport, the college sports world has been a racket and has made a lot of money off those. And um, uh, I mean, I think, it, you know, it's, I, I would end it by saying, I think a lot of those players are deserving of it. Companies, colleges have made money off them. I don't, I don't uh, have any beef with them making a few bucks. Fancy restaurant meals, underrated or overrated? Totally overrated. Totally overrated. 
pickleball is a hobby, underrated or overrated? Still underrated. You know, I get, I'm, I'm, I'm on the craze. Uh, and I still get, uh, you know, you still get the sneer from paddle players or tennis players or get mocking. It's underrated, absolutely fantastic game. The beaches on Cape Cod, underrated or overrated? Underrated. Uh, you know, we, it's a favorite ba- vacation spot for us. Um, they could be a little overrated in February. I'll give you that. But uh, in, in the warm months, they are underrated. Having a corporate offsite where you get all your employees together, underrated or overrated? Totally underrated. Um, particularly in the post-COVID environment, getting people together, you just can't reproduce that on Zoom or Teams or a phone call. Um, things just get better and you get more done when you make that investment. Huge fan of the uh, offsite engagement. Pimento cheese, underrated or overrated? Absolutely underrated. Uh, I go to my mother's roots in Kentucky. Uh, she brought pimento cheese into our family. Uh, I've got to say, I think it's my favorite uh, favorite appetizer. Um, it's a it's a treat. Um, don't walk past the pimento cheese aisle. Are there any branded pimento cheeses? By the way, I mean I've seen it, but I've never seen like a brand. Yeah, so there's some called Palmetto cheese, which is kind of a bit of a knockoff. Huh. But um, you'll find it in, in near your your hummuses and all that. Yeah, and, yeah. Okay, yeah, we, we yeah. maybe that's uh, maybe that's an opportunity for someone out there. Branded pimento cheese. <laughs> exactly. Using yeah. generative AI at work. I think it's overrated. Um, I'm seeing people apply it in marketing materials, and it. Often, if it's not done well, it comes off as clunky and inauthentic. Um, so I think in certain areas, it's, it's, it's overrated in the marketing and, and work product area. Um, but it needs to be, it'll, it'll get better and better. Being a house painter, underrated or overrated? Overrated. I spent nine summers <laughs> as a house painter. Uh, God bless these men and women who do it. It's great, noble work. But uh, I, I had enough after nine summers. Yeah, I, I painted the entire interior of my house, my first house, and I bought it over two weeks and stripped the wallpaper with my wife and some relatives. That was not fun. And <laughs> finally, the movie, This is Spinal Tap. I, it, it's completely underrated. Uh, it is right at the top of my list. It is one of those that just classics from 1984 that endures and endures and endures. Um, the humor is still a staple of my banter with some of my college buddies. Um, so big, big fan of that work. I'm just going to close it out with my amplifiers go to 11. Anyway, this <laughs> exactly. has been Doug Parker, founder and CEO of Ecolimix. So Doug, great having you on the show. Thanks for coming today. So great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Alec. I really appreciate it. You were listening to the Stay Sustainable podcast. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. For example, Apple Podcasts, production and sound engineering by Troutman Street Audio. You can find them on LinkedIn. Please like, subscribe, and comment. You can also find the podcast and blog at stayblog.substack.com.
i'm sorry dave i'm afraid i can't do that